Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I've got a very special guest today. I'm very delighted to have the brilliant uh, Nora Erica, who it has many hats. Many of my guests have many hats, but here's one with loads of hats. Activist, university professor, legal scholar, human rights attorney, associate professor at Rutgers University, specializing in international studies. One of the great voices that many of us have been looking to, I would say, when this particular round of horror, um, of course, began, though, um, and I should say, of course, relevant, uh, that Nora is a Palestinian American. And it is so important, which we've tried to do this on this channel, um, to elevate Palestinian voices right now, those of Palestinian heritage who have been consciously removed from this so-called discussion. Um, hi, Nora, by the way. Good to see you. Hi, Owen. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that, that that's absolutely right. Um, you know, everything that's happening right now, especially in the way that folks have understood this as part of a Nakba, that genocide is a continuation of a Palestinian Nakba, that Zionism is a form of racism and a settler colonial project, is literally building on decades of the Palestinian intellectual and political tradition. But traditions, as you say, that have been consciously excised, not just by, you know, um, you know, places of academic knowledge production and media and government, but even in, in Israeli policy, which have deliberately targeted archives, right? In the establishment of Israel in 1948, it was a, one of the targets was the collection of books, photographs, um, archives that were all put into military archives that were off, you know, beyond the access of Palestinian scholars. When they do become available, they become available only to Israeli scholars who then become, you know, are the new historians. And now we have to look to the new historians as opposed to looking to the Palestinians who are producing that knowledge. We see that again. In this instance, Israel just bombed a university. It has bombed archives in um, the Gaza Strip. It bombed the Jalat Tower in 2021. All of this forms part of what people have described as uh, epistemicide, right? But I think more generally is part of a move to erase a people. Because what is, what is a people without a history? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Then they become a motley crew of individuals. But when we have a history and that is a history that we've well documented, that is, that is what we're putting forward. So, yes, all of that to say is it does matter that Palestinians are speaking, speaking for themselves and that when other people speak, they are also building on Palestinian traditions that don't intend to speak on their behalf, but intend to speak with them to remember this isn't just an interesting topic. This is a liberation struggle. Uh, and so uh, there's something at stake here for the future. And that's such a powerful point. This isn't something people should dip in and out as a, here's an interesting world event. This is about the struggle of the people who've suffered with the direct complicity of Western governments. I was going to come back actually and ask you that point about the uh, the, uh, the university, which has been blown up. I'll come on to that. But that point in terms of complicity, Joe Biden 
and the president, obviously the United States. Mm. I would say there's not been much subtlety in erasing, again, Palestinians, that's what we're talking about there, from the so-called discussion. Nonetheless, I saw someone describe his statement on 100 days since this current horror began, as they said, that someone described it as one of the most outrageous statements issued by a president in, in history, because what it did, and no one can begrudge him for speaking about hostages and including American hostages, it didn't mention Palestinians once. Nothing about the death, the killing, nothing. Not, not one mention of Palestinians. How do you feel about that? What does that say? One, I, I have to say, let me just start by saying that as someone who, you know, follows politics, I am shocked. I am shocked that this sitting president who very well knows that his standing has dropped, that his base, his constituent base, the Democrats, who 60% of whom are demanding a ceasefire, which the Democratic establishment is completely ignoring, who have told him that his 2024 election prospects are already dismal, that even in his self-interested pursuit went on to put out a statement that is an abject disregard of that constituent voter base and of the of, of the Americans of Palestinian heritage, of Arab heritage, of Muslim of Muslim uh, piety, who happen, you know, to to understand this very intimately, and it was a disregard to them. So even before I get into the question of humanity and Zionism and the dehumanization of Palestinians, just thinking about even if you don't care and you're just looking at this, just think about like as an analyst, who is advising this man? Is this, this is like literally self-sabotage or he is such a committed Zionist, he's ready to die on this, on this hill. He is such a committed Zionist, he could care less about his political prospects, about the United States, about, you know, Pax Americana, whatever it may be. As a Palestinian looking at that, I understand full well that this is not just um, a continuing Israeli genocide of Palestinians, but that this is a U.S. war. This is a U.S. war against Palestinians. This uh, refusal to acknowledge humans, 10,000 children, 1% of the entire population of Palestinian children, 40% of all those who have died, a thousand of them have had one or more limbs amputated at a rate of 10 per day who do not merit empathy, basic empathy. And, and it really, really sets the tone that our, our, our struggle is one that is deeply entrenched um, and is, is absolutely dehumanizing where not only is there no quarter literally for Palestinians seeking shelter from Israeli bombing, but there is literally no shelter for us globally, um, and especially now in the United States in the eyes of this administration. I'm really struck by what you said there in terms of being a kind of an American attack, because I interviewed actually another lawyer of Palestinian heritage, Dinah Buta, who's a Palestinian Canadian. Um, and she- The junior it, settler colony. Sorry, say that again. The junior settler colony. Yes, indeed. Yes, exactly. Uh, but she said it was um, an Israeli-American attack on Gaza. 100%. This would not be possible without the provision of obviously uh, US intelligence, intelligence, military weapons, 
without the provision of billions of dollars and the provision of immunity within all of these multilateral organs that have some capacity to, you know, force Israel to cease its hostilities. This could not be possible. The fact that the U.S., you know, sent, you know, deployed its aircraft to aircraft carriers within the first week after October 7th signaled to the rest of the region that do not become involved because we will strike back. Right. And that's precisely what we're seeing. So we're seeing this on multiple levels, even, you know, even um, earlier this week when the Israel was bombing the last hospital, the Nasser hospital in Khan Yunus, the last fully functioning hospital, which was already at capacity. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders, who refuses to call for a ceasefire was at least trying to mobilize, mobilize U.S. law. And there's a tremendous amount of U.S. law, right? The Arms Export Control Act, the Leahy Amendment, um, multiple MOUs that would um, condition the provision of U.S. military support on the compliance of its recipient with human rights norms. The Senate, by a vote of, I think, 72 to 11, right, refused to comply with U.S. law on this question demonstrating the commitment that it has to this war, irrespective of, you know, any kind of norms. I mean, I, I would call it a democratic cr a crisis of democracy, but then I would have to somehow admit that this is a democracy when that is not true. When there is, there's, there's no respect for a voter base, you know, this idea that, you know, do what the majority wants. The majority is clear on this and there's no respect for a voter base. There's no respect for U.S. law, irrespective of the way that they trash international law or the word in the words of former Justice Antonin Scalia, it's not international law, it's foreign law for everyone else. The U.S. in its role as empire wants to situate itself as a global police force and therefore not subject to these to these norms um, and these laws. And this, this crystallized very, very much during the Bush administration and in the advent of the global war on terror, where it didn't want to adhere, for example, to the third Geneva Convention on the treatment of prisoners of war. It didn't want to adhere to Yuskojin's norms on the prohibition of torture and so on and so forth. And yet the U.S. in its claim to want to be policemen forgets that it more than any other country needs to be policed, not only for the harm that it does abroad, but even to its own, um, quote, you know, so-called citizens. We see this most, you know, vividly um, in, 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 the, in the moment of black uprising that's basically demanding accountability for the way that the state, state agents of the state, law enforcement, as well as institutions um, are all part of, of maintaining the supremacy of a white racial class as well as maintaining a settler colonial project again, you know, across indigenous lands. Point, you know, maybe we'll get to this later, but case in point, the U.S. has never even acknowledged the genocide of Native Americans. Mm. It attributes this annihilation of a people, multiple peoples, multiple nations, to disease and warfare, uh, which is a lesson for us to think about genocide as well in this moment. On that, because I'm going to ask you in the context of the ICJ and something that just that historical context, I think, is, is just so important. Um, I mean, in terms of that dehumanization, I was speaking actually earlier to Tal Mitnick, who's an 18 year old Israeli who went to prison for refusing to serve. Yes. Um, and he said to me that the moderate view, so basically he was in a military prison with soldiers who basically they, they weren't conscientious objectors, as you will find out. Uh, they were deserters and people like that. Um, but he said the moderate view 
amongst those soldiers was to extirpate, to kill all Arabs. That's what he said. And I just, in terms of that broader, comp, because that, you know, the, the broad, there's an attempt to make everything begin on the 7th of October, but there's a broader history there, isn't there? That's that's uh, the continued, the dehumanization of Palestinians, which now has a overtly genocidal, not subtle manifestation in terms of rhetoric and practice. But in terms of what do you think that that context which people don't discuss of how Palestinians were dehumanized in the very beginning? Well, it depends on who, who we're saying is not discussing it. So like as we oh. as we said earlier in the Palestinian intellectual and political tradition, it's been a central point of the discussion. In fact, genocide is not possible if not predicated on the thorough dehumanization of people. There wasn't just a revolutionary change after October 7th where really peace-loving Israelis suddenly started to hate Palestinians and thought that all of them were human animals and deserved to die, right? That is deeply ingrained, deeply ingrained in a society that literally has equated Nakba or the Palestinian catastrophe to peace. Right? It's, a, it's a framework that has basically created not only an exception, but a framework that has predicated peace and the existence of um, a Zionist settler sovereign on the continual removal, dispossession, and concentration of Palestinians, right? And so here, I think it's important to point out, Owen, one of the controversies that um, I've encountered and, and, and been engaging with, even in the human rights community, comes around the time that the human rights community finally catches up to this Palestinian intellectual political tradition in 2020, when they recognize um, Israel as overseeing um, an apartheid regime. One of the things that fell out of the bottom of this finding was that it's, it's an apartheid regime based on racism. If you read these reports closely, they basically, you know, adhere to a very strict reading of the Apartheid Convention of 1973, which only finds that you have to find an intent to persecute or to dominate, right? But not dominate based on racism, just to dominate. And so what these organizations did is they dropped a racial analysis out of uh, uh, from the bottom. Um, Bitsenim goes so far as to say in South Africa, there was racism based on race and color in Israel. It's not racism, it's based on nationality and religion, in which completely um, you know, flies in the face of the definition of racial discrimination in the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which defines um, racial discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, nationality, and ethnicity. So this legal institution created its own framework. And the reason they all do it, Owen, is to not have to grapple with Zionism as a racist ideology. And yet, you know, somehow imagining that Israel just becomes a Frankenstein and just becomes an apartheid regime because it failed to establish Palestinian sovereignty in the form of a truncated state, but takes for granted that it has been a Zionist ideology that has predicated the establishment of a settler sovereign literally on you know um genocidal expansion and territorial consolidation it is the it is the it is the engine by which we get to this point so why does that matter because they're basically recommending some sort of juridical reform we just make this state more equal 
you know, one one person, one vote, and somehow now racism is solved, apartheid is gone. But what they, you know, what they're not dealing with is that a racist ideology that continues to shape state and society across the board. Um, and that's what we have to deal with and why so many of us have insisted that there is no solution that doesn't grapple with settler decolonization in order to address these issues. Well, I'm going to ask you, because certainly in terms of what happens next, which is obviously crucial, this is what you talk about there. That that point, I just, in terms of, because I'm because you're, you're a legal brain, to talk to you about the ICJ, okay. um, the International Court of Justice application. I spoke to a really fast, a brilliant, interesting um, academic who is from the post-colonial tradition, basically. And he talks about this idea of um, you can't, the, the, the term they often use is you can't, take down the master's house with the master's tools. Um, and it's just something just really struck me what you just said, which, which he emphasized that genocide is not a rare event in history. It's actually extremely common. It's actually how many states are forged. And how the West was forged, yeah. Exactly. So you can't disentangle, therefore, the structures of international law from the practice of genocide when it's taught to people as though it's an aberration, but it isn't an aberration. It's actually Not even a little bit. It's so constitutive. I, I'm so I want to just to, to honor because we might be from the same tradition. We, who is who is this um, academic that you spoke to? Do you remember? He's a brilliant guy called uh, Doctor Alonso Gomendi. Um, okay. He's a he's a Peruvian British academic. Um, I don't know him. But I am part of um, a I am part of a tradition of critical scholars known as the third world approach to international law. Twill, we are twillers who, you know, in that in that intellectual tradition, seek to basically illuminate the the the, the oppressive force of international law, and specifically insist that international law expand developed in 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 on behalf of the expansion of empire um which first expands you know in the name of christian dominion and as such created a global racial hierarchy that when international law becomes you know more formally enshrined right it becomes enshrined in a way that preserves uh european um and and white supremacy um as such so you can see and, and there are many many different scholars you know study this and they look at different bodies of law whether it be michael Thakhri who's looking at you know contemporary trade and how you know sugar um sugar plantations and and slave economies actually contributed to that development or you think about um don reynolds a co-author of mine who looks at emergency regimes of basically, you know, a derivative of um, a colonial rule, which, you know, suspended all forms of civilian law in order to maintain colonial order that's now enshrined um, as an exception in international human rights law, no less on behalf of states. My own work does that as well as I think about a Palestinian struggle for freedom as refracted through the relationship between law and power, where I, you know, in, in, in my narration, I basically narrate that between 1917 and 2017, international law has done a lot more to serve Israel's um, interests than it has been to serve Palestinians. I nonetheless conclude that we can use it strategically. Which is why in this moment, you know, I you often find me, you know, described as a human rights attorney on the one hand and on the other hand, producing scholarship that's tearing apart 
all of these legal regimes for being forms of colonial oppression and embodiments of it. We see that very blatantly, um, for example, in the way uh, that right now the International Court, uh, Criminal Court, um, Office of the Prosecutor, has failed, abjectly failed, um, his mandate, Kareem Khan, in this particular moment. Now we can we can say that Kareem Khan is just a bloat, as you all might might say. I don't we don't use that in the states, um, and is just a bad guy, and we should we, you know replace him. But let's be clear: even if Kareem Khan is gone, the structure of international criminal law is enshrined in um, the Rome Statute, in particular, right? Is a structure of white supremacy that enshrines it that protects uh, the former colonial powers from ever being um, prosecuted for their crimes of genocide, of colonialism, right? Um, and, is, it, and, and racializes, uh, racializes black and brown peoples um, very explicitly. And we see that even in the uh, jurisprudence of the ICC since 2002, it's only taken on Arab and African heads of state with the exception of Slobodan Milosevic. Right. And now, obviously, the uh, the arrest warrant, a warrant for Putin, which I, I think we can explain as well. So all of this. To say, so what does that mean? So you you cited Audre Lorde. We do not use the black feminist um, theorist that we do not use the master's tools in order to dismantle the master's house. And so, you know, this is really complicated. How do we as advocates, knowing full well that we live imbricated in the, uh, the house that the master built, how do we dismantle it? Well, there's, I, I don't think that there's only one way or the other. Disruption is absolutely central. Mass mobilization is absolutely central. To the extent that we use the law, we have to use it without any fidelity to the law, but in a way where we use it, you know, as I describe in my book, you know, think of it like the sail of a boat. You raise the sail when the winds are blowing in our favor. You draw the sail when they're blowing against us and you create a new sail when necessary. And in this moment, I just want to, to really lift up global mass movement that but for the millions of people out in the streets, even South Africa probably would not have brought this case before the ICJ. It is precisely because of the people. So even though when we get to the stage and you say, I want to pick your brain as a legal mind, right? And this becomes a specialized discussion that only lawyers can have. Yeah. I, I, I like to push back and say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because what we end up doing then is disempowering the very people and the very vehicle that made visible that this was an instance of genocide. It wasn't lawyers that brought the charge. It was millions of people who brought the charge that created the political environment that now made it possible to bring this case and to articulate it in the way that it's been articulated. So, I mean, what do you think? We don't know, obviously, in terms of what provisional measures, if any, will be issued. Right. The case in the ICJ, in terms of, as people may or may not know, takes itself years to establish in terms of the actual specific claims, merits, but you can have provisional measures in the meantime within within weeks. I mean, do you, do you think, looking at the ICJ, that has become a terrain of struggle which people should have some optimism about because of the political context that's been created through struggle rather than just seeing being defeatist and going well international law is rigged intentionally to ensure that you don't get justice for an oppressed nation like palestine okay so it's an and also right it's an and also construction we have to believe that international law is rigged because it is 
It is rigged and it's constructed in order to maintain the dominance of this year, you know, of, of former colonial powers. And at the same time, we can't, in the face of that, you know, in the face of that construction, then, you know, signal defeat and surrender. To the contrary, we have to be strategic, use the law when it's necessary and helpful. Let me give you an example. I have a lot to say about the ICC and the Rome Statute, but I was part of one of the teams that, you know, submitted a petition to the ICC charging Netanyahu, Galian, um, and, and Galan with genocide, right? What many people, I would, I would have been the first one to say, and I did say in 2014 that any ICC investigation, one, would be depoliticized, drop the context out of the bottom and prosecute Hamas first. We're seeing that happen, right? But I don't regret bringing that petition because as a result, we were able to start scaffolding a legal argument that then created the controversy to have this conversation on media and to, to democratize a conversation where everybody now can probably cite and rattle off the 1948 genocide convention and the critique, right? And the critique that genocide was practiced as a tradition of Western development long before it was proscribed in the 1948 convention once it, once it was uh, practiced within Europe, Europe shore. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right? And so similarly, in this moment, I'm very well aware, ICJ jurisprudence on the merits is a really, really high threshold of when there's genocide. It's quite unfortunate. It should be more expansive right? It should be more expansive. But the threshold makes it as such in some of the jurisprudence that if a belligerent state can demonstrate that there are any other reasons for this type of, you know, um, a trot of warfare, then that, you know, th then that makes dispositive the claim of, of genocidal intent. Now, one, I'm not sure that Israel will be able to meet that threshold. We shouldn't be defeated on that level either. But assuming that that is a high risk, right? This moment of bringing the case on provisional measures is still absolutely necessary because the the standard is lower. It's only plausibility. It's yeah. not as as high. Number two, that enables us to build you know more political will in order to isolate Israel and the United States who are bringing this warfare. Number three, it empowers a base to continue advocating and agitating for ceasefire, and it gives a, a, a greater basis for national governments, right? There's at least eight heads of state, heads of state, 
and 11 foreign ministries that have described what Israel is doing as genocide. And it gives those states also a greater platform, number one, to bring cases of uni universal jurisdictions within their national court, but also, number two, to engage in advocacy amongst other states that they too must you know, cease and desist from providing Israel with military and economic aid because then they are complicit in genocide as well. And this, Owen, all before we reach the merit stage. So this is what I mean about thinking about this strategically. We don't, you know, I think just take for granted that this law is not for us. And at the same time, mobilize it in our service, which I think we're doing really well right now. And I also think that we shouldn't take for granted that we, law is not, Law is not a holy text, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think some people might, you know, the Quran, you, you can never amend. That is a holy text, right? Law is not like that. You can amend it at any time. So the fact that you can create new law and has been proposed, for example, by legal scholar and, and advocate, Rabia Ghbariya, who whose article, the Harvard Law Review, refused to publish, but then the nation published, who has said that one of the reasons that this might be too difficult for people to recognize either apartheid in Palestine or, or genocide in this moment is because we have to advance our own language, which means, you know, mobilizing to then make Nekba legible within international law. And that is not a fanciful, you know, desire. That's actually a very practical measure that we can take in order to advance, um, in order to advance our cause. So again, um, take international law with a grain of salt and that it is a site of oppression. Use it strategically when it's going to serve our purposes, right? Think of it like in, in, in guerrilla combat. Make your, make your adversaries' strengths into weaknesses. Turn your weaknesses into strengths. And then thirdly, don't take for granted that we can change the law and create new law when necessary. I mean, now is the time to do it, especially when we see this pitched battle between the global north and the global south. Wow, that was a real tour de force, that. And it's so, so important. That was genuinely extremely, I mean, in terms of the way you elucidated that, I think people find that absolutely fascinating. And very, I found that just incredibly thought-provoking, to be honest. I know we're doing a little whistle-stop tour here of big subjects. You're a busy person, very in demand, which is great, obviously. But Zionism, we talked about Zionism there a bit at the beginning. Now, it's so important we hear that from a Palestinian perspective, we talk about Zionism, because a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about it. People will say, well, look, the Zionists and the Zionists, the Zionists who believe in a greater Israel and overtly like Ben Gavir, people like that, purge all the Palestinians. But then there's Zionists who would say they're in support of a two-state solution and you know, is therefore that a useful catch-all term? Lots of Jewish people would say they're Zionists, but there's a range of opinions. So what do we mean when we talk about Zionism and how do we kind of, you know, because there is, obviously there are A, people using anti-Semitism to shut down any sympathy at all with the Palestinian people. And there is also real anti-Semitism as well, where we have to demarcate. So how do we have these conversations? So you brought up several things, right? So let's just start by getting rid of the most obvious argument, which is the weaponization of, you know, um, and, you know, the conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. This is the most disingenuous, the most disingenuous argument that has basically made my existence as a Palestinian. Hmm. When I say that proudly, if we take it to its logical end, I am, I am an embodiment of anti-Semitism for daring to exist. Yeah, yeah. So let's just get rid of that, right? And also not take for granted that so many of those who are advancing this argument are actually white nationalists and white supremacists who I think 
right, are mobilizing this argument in order to advance white supremacy, but doing it in a way that it's ensconed and protected by an argument against anti-Semitism, right? Because you can't very proudly say um, that you're a white supremacist, but you can say like Richard Spencer that, you know, this white supremacists just want to advance European sovereignty in the image of the way that Zionists have advanced, you know, Zionist sovereignty, right? And so here you have very, you know, self-avowed anti-Zionists in the classical, you know, in, in classical tropes who are basically defending Israel, but harming Jewish people, right? And so one, just to take that with a grain of, I don't even, there's not much to do there, right? There's really not much to do there. And it's really unfortunate. Anti-Semitism precedes even a Zionist political movement. So what are we talking about? And for Zionists to then insist that all Jews are somehow represented by the state of Israel, even though, and here's why, here's where we get into, you know, the theorization of Zionism. Zionism proposed to respond to, you know, European Enlightenment forms of anti-Semitism that excluded Jews from European citizenship and made them eligible for it only if they, you know, um, assimilated into, you know, the, the enlightened European man, right, in their image, meaning they discard any external markers of their piety um, and certain, you know, and, and agreed to fully assimilate, right, that they can then be accepted within Europe. And so Zionism responds um, to that by internalizing um, anti-Semitism. And in fact, it's, you know, it's born in the same, you know, crucible, um, you know, in, in that same, you know, political intellectual milieu in order to say that in order for Jews to be equal and earn acceptance within Europe, they have to create a state outside of its shores. Right? And I recommend very highly an article by Shireen Say Ali and Max Isle, who look at Derrida in order, you know, to articulate this very well. Now, once they, when they do that, they also reconstruct the new Jew within Israel as being a European Jew. So that now there's this homogenized history of a global, a rich global um, Jewish, you know, tradition that suddenly becomes, in the words of Al-Shahat, a history of Holocaust and shtetl. Right. We don't even you drop and even to become to be eligible to become a new Jew within Israel and really to become white. Right. You have to bifurcate for those Middle Eastern Jews, your Arab and Jewish identity. You have to not speak Arabic. You have to not identify um, with your with your with your culture and your and, and your other traditions. This is a very you know, this is an aspiration to whiteness as I lay out in my, my article on whiteness as property in Israel based on Cheryl Harris's seminal work. Okay, so I think I got lost in, in walking you through thinking about Zionism and that racial issue. But here, what Zionists have done is they basically constructed Juda Judaism, no longer merely as a religion where people have an affinity with one another, but instead as a juridical category and a nationality that's extraterritorially applied and so unlike other forms of, you know, use sanguinous or, or citizenship through bloodline, you don't have to demonstrate familial relationship or relationship to the land. You just have to demonstrate a Jewish identity, which is precisely why we're saying that this is a, a racist category, right? That, that, that somebody born today or tomorrow 
or yesterday who identifies as Jewish has more right to land, employment, education, right, housing, right, within um, historic Palestine than a Palestinian family that preceded the existence of the state of Israel in 1948. Because what happens in 1950 and 1953 through the legislation of law is the bifurcation of Israeli citizenship and Jewish nationality. So that there are two categories always happening. One is being an Israeli citizen who's also a Jewish national, and the one, the other one is being an Israeli citizen only. These are the Palestinians, the 20% of the Israeli population who are Palestinians who did not leave, right? And so this, anyways, this is basically, basically the construction and the legal argumentation about apartheid. That's that, you know, on the question of the first, the first question of, of what we can establish. And I think it also goes to the heart of the second piece. Liberal Zionists who care about Palestinians, who do believe that they have human rights, but who condition the approximation of those rights, who condition that recognition on humanity as secondary to the protection of Israel as a, a Zionist settler sovereign with um, a definitive Jewish demographic majority. So even those liberal Zionists who have some empathy for Palestinians, for example, will forego, will, will forego that empathy if, the, if, if Israel as a Jewish only state is threatened. And so I, I, you know, I, don't, I, I don't think that we can mince words here. I think that we have to be very straightforward that liberal Zionists are not, you know, are not leading us to, to, to a better future. They're, they want to enshrine, they want to make an exception right? They want to say this is bad and the Nakba was bad and it's unfortunately unfortunate that we've excluded Palestinian refugees, but it's okay because it's serving a broader good. But you didn't ask the very people who are paying the highest price for the exception you're demanding. And unless Palestinians are saying that that's fine with them, I don't think that that's okay and Palestinians have not said that. Just finally then, I mean, I suppose as well, it's that, that final question, it almost becomes a bit of an abstraction because so-called liberal Zionism has pretty much died a death in, in modern Israel in, in any case. Um, but where in terms of where things go next, I, mean, I interviewed the Israeli journalist Gideon Levy, a very courageous journalist. And the reason he's so courageous is because he's so isolated uh, within Israel. And I keep interviewing these brilliant Israeli peace activists who are very courageous and they're very isolated. The point he makes is, forget change happening within Israeli society. It isn't going to happen. And his view is that the only possible way things would change would be the given the patronage of the United States, which Israel completely depends on militarily, political support, diplomatic support, aid, all the rest of it, that when the US shifts, then things will change. And then we could point to the fact, because of struggles, if you look at younger Americans, the polling suggests they're the most pro-Palestinian ever, that when they come of age politically, um, and they've become a lot of them very politicized over Palestine, I would say, that's when things will change. And I'm just wondering, where do you see the end game for all of this? How does, we're looking at genocide in Gaza, we're looking at apartheid, we're looking at the, you know, settler colonialism, that project, as things stand, we can see all the horrors, it's it's not, there's no foreseeable end to any of that. Is that how it ends, do you think? Um, yeah, this is probably the part where I'm going to be the least, you know, uplifting and, and say a few things. Number one, 100%. There has been 
a dramatic revolutionary generational shift amongst Americans and especially young Americans um, and racialized communities who very clearly um, one, you know, see who are, are, are part of movements for gender justice, racial justice, climate change, gun reform, who see how badly the adults have failed them and the, and, and, and the future that they're leaving behind for them, right? And this grouping, I think, even has, you know, a critique of Zionism, even at such a young, you know, formative age, a critique of Zionism, or at least of Israel, that helps them understand that it is as dangerous to them and their future as is white supremacy and capitalism. And so 100%, I see this generational shift, and I have a lot of hope. Um, that, you know, and it, you know, everything is generational. Everything is generational. Think about um, gender justice. Think about, you know, same sex uh, marriages. Think about even abolition of slavery and, and Jim, Jim Crow and the rest of it. These things happen generationally. So that just, that feels on track, right? Here's where I'm less optimistic. It's twofold. Number one, the U.S. can drop out as Israel's primary patron, as I think it will but that won't preclude Israel from finding another primary imperial patron. And so the U.S. is now a central part of the problem. But And, and if it's stopped now, obviously we can stop the genocide now and da 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 But I don't think that that will necessarily yield the, the outcome immediately that we want because of other options. I mean, think about it. Primary patrons before the U.S. were uh, Britain and to some extent France. Before it was the United States following um, the 1967 war. Who knows what the future horizon? Israel is already trying to permeate um, China and Chinese government in order to establish those ties there, seeing the writing on the wall. So that's one. Number two, Israelis. Israelis. Who, honestly, I, in this moment, am, am mortified by Israeli society, not just its military and political elite, like it's it's society, which were out, you know, um, I remember even during their uprisings against the Supreme Court um, reform, right, were being sprayed by, by water cannons and, and beaten up by police. And there was a father who said, my son is fighting, um, you know, to protect, you know, and Hawada, Hawada, which, um, you know, uh, they wanted to wipe off the mat and subject to two settler programs. My son is out there in Hawada and look how the government is treating me. Right? I mean, we got glimpses of just how problematic Israeli society is in wanting to establish some reform to save a democracy that's a, that excludes, you know, half of the people over which Israel governs. Right? That literally just excludes them. In this moment, it's even worse. Even worse, school children are bullying principals who express empathy for Palestinian life. School children are not learning empathy, are on television singing ballads about decimating and flattening Gaza, right? What do you do with this? What do we do with a society that frankly is, is, is lifting up and normalizing fascism? And, and that is echoed also by Netanyahu, who says he doesn't care what The Hague says, and he doesn't care what the U.S. says, because the U.S. is advocating for a certain future, right? And, and, and so this is also what we have to think of, that 
this you know israeli society may very well even in the scenario that it becomes completely isolated globally as it should as any pariah apartheid state should right um and we would still have to contend with a reality of what will lead to a transformation within israeli society external pressure is necessary and it's our duty for those who are have access to levers uh, of that pressure, but that doesn't mean that that leaves Israeli society and and government as a site of of target, and that responsibility belongs to the Israelis, right? Belongs to whatever is left of the Israeli left. What does that transformation look like? And so this is where we are, um, and I think you know. The, you know, the, I, I, unfortunately, I think that the targets of, 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 of that desperation and that violence will continue to be Palestinians, you know, will be our kin and our friends. Um, and, and that's horrifying and precisely why we're fighting so hard, but it shouldn't just be left to us. And it shouldn't just be left to a juridical question. Or an equation and it shouldn't just be left to a discussion on like these ir meta discussions of what do states do and how you know are they funded this ha there has to be some soul searching here right there has to be some full-on full frontal confrontation with an insistence on um you know the zionist insistence on jewish supremacy and exceptionalism wow extremely powerful stuff i mean just in terms of what you referred to, just so people know, I interviewed, as I said, this 18-year-old called Tal Mitnick earlier and actually included the video of a principal, a teacher being bullied by uh, young students after they shared a Haaretz article, the Israeli um, relatively progressive newspaper, um, which had a kind of platitudinous call for peace or Palestinians to be humanised and basically nearly got lynched by the students. And the, the point Tal made to me was, unlike American or British younger people, the youngest generation in Israel are significantly more re reactionary. And he said, actually, he used the word fascistic uh, compared go to... In, go in. Israel is exceptional where its youth are more conservative than their adults. Yeah. That's not how, you know, normally the young are more radical than the, you know, the, the elders and not in Israel. And that is really here, you know, what we should be concerned with and talking about. To what end? To what end? Can you imagine if every country, based on you know sovereignty and what they decide sovereignty looks like, modeled Israel, where they said you know think about it, think about you know Modi's India, um, or, or or think about you know white nationalists when when they say that they that this is their right for them to that this is in the name of their sovereignty, the first people to suffer from this equation would be Jews. Who are minorities, you know, why would they want that future? They would reject it outright, be it in the United States, in Canada, in France, in Britain. And so why would they want to create this model in Israel as if this form of exception is contained? Exceptions are not contained. Exceptions are replicated and become the norm. And so we should reject them. Candid, brutal, and the truth. And that's uh, often reflects, I think, the conversations that I've been having on this channel over the last few weeks. We're not here to cheer people up. We're here to tell people the truth. Um, and, and reality is 
as things stand, um, a brutal one, but we need desperately voices like Nora. I, for those who haven't come across Nora, I think you can see why I was so desperate for her to to speak to us. And you can see that was a real tour de force throughout. So do share this video, obviously. Subscribe, get the word out, like. Press like, obviously. But Nora, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Owen, and thank um, and thank you how you you know you continue to disturb people and run amok. Um, it has been wonderful, and even from across the pond, um, a source of of strength and inspiration. Well, I never I keep saying I never forgive myself for doing anything else. What's the point of me having my platform? But I'm, I've 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 always disturbed people throughout my life, so at least there's that one consistency. Uh, but but thank you and lots of love. All right, Yola, thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.